Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. All right, well, thanks for listening to another edition of American Potential. I want to talk about something that's near and dear to all of our hearts. I mean, I think of this topic, and I think every American, this affects you every single day of your life, and it's energy. The idea that we that we, this whole society that we've built is built upon the consumption of energy. And frankly, we see in Washington too many people trying to use government to pick winners and losers in the energy sector. But one of the things that we've seen over the last several years really is the this administration and some in Congress really trying to skew it away, you know, make choices away from good choices in in the energy sector. And it, it impacts us day in and day out in America. It drives up the cost for single families. Um, it, 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 it makes it harder for all of us to live. And it's, it's, uh, it's something from filling up the gas tank to heating your home. Those are more and more expensive each and every year because of the decisions, the bad policies made in Washington, D.C. and in state capitals around the country. But there is the House of Representatives has taken action, passed a bipartisan bill called the Lower Energy Cost Act. And on today's episode, we have Mark Marie, who's a policy fellow at Americans for Prosperity, to talk about H.R. 1, that bill, and the impact it could have on America. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on. Yeah. So first of all, let's talk about H.R. 1, what it is. It's the, the, the Lower Energy Cost Act, but let's talk about what it is and what it would do. Sure. Um, so the Lower Energy Cost Act would basically remove existing restrictions in federal law uh, that are um, constraining the production and delivery of energy. Um, and when you constrain the production delivery to market of anything, the price is going to go up. Um, so this was, as the title suggests, H.R. 1, the first priority of the new Republican House representatives. In their minds, they identified this as uh, both the kind of biggest issue and also the one with the most kind of bipartisan appeal yeah. to be their first bid to kind of reorient a federal policy on the economy specifically on energy. Yeah, so and so folks understand HR1 usually when a bill is tagged HR1 it's the top priority of the party in charge of that house of of uh, the house of representatives in this case. So this is like the 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 top priority uh to them and you know it's going to have a much more difficult road in the Senate we know. But this is this is an issue, and I, I don't want us to just talk about this from a policy standpoint. Let's talk about how this impacts people's lives, right? Sure. I mean, there are I've, I've used this example on the podcast before, but there are people out there, you know, single moms who are because of the cost of energy getting so high, their utility bills or their gas to go to work. They're having to make tough choices in life of do they do they buy a new pair of shoes for their kids or do they you know, put gas in the, in the car to get to work. And politicians think that, well, we just make these decisions in Washington and, and they don't think of that impact. There's a real impact here, right? No, there absolutely is. And it really runs the spectrum. I mean, you have, uh, you know, people who are on, you know, fixed budgets, retirees, 
Uh, you have people who just have difficult budget situations, like maybe a single mom. And then you have those decisions that maybe aren't quite as stark, but still erode your quality of life. You know, you have people who, you know, am I going to go on a vacation this summer, given what the price of gas or the price of, uh, you know, plane tickets, which is based in part on jet yeah, fuel, right. um, you know, with prices being where they are, and especially coming out of COVID, you know, people want to get out and about and really re-enter life. And this is just making it that much more expensive for them to do it. So, you know, the impacts really run the gamut. Uh, some very stark ones and ones that are more around the edges, but, you know, cumulatively, it's very impactful. Um, and, you know, it's not just about individuals. It is about business. It is about industry. Uh, you know, we don't think about this as often, kind of, you know, from a grassroots perspective, but um, a lot of industry in the United States, um, as around the world, it depends on huge, huge inputs of energy. If you're going to make steel, if you're going to uh, you know, make petrochemicals, really any heavy industry requires a lot of heat. And that's just the physics of heavy industry. Heat means a lot of energy. As those prices go up, uh, you know, American industrial competitiveness also goes down. So that's something that we don't focus on as much, but it's also critically important um, to making the U.S. economy, particularly industry, more competitive globally. I think that's a point that is lost on a lot of people like the the cost of energy when when the price of gas goes up or the price of you know electricity goes up it it it, it is such a driver of inflation in our economy right i mean everything has to be you know everything that's manufactured has to be manufactured and then taken somewhere else and that cost of energy increases the price for everything whether it's eggs you know uh, the food we eat whether it's steel no matter what it is that's really a driver in the inflation that we've seen as well, right? It absolutely is. You know, energy costs end up kind of flowing through to anything that's produced with energy, whether the product is produced with energy or even it's just, let's say, you know, a chicken lays an egg. Well, you got to bring it to market, to the supermarket. Well, you're going to put it in a truck. The truck is going to consume a lot of diesel. And, you know, for example, diesel prices were even higher by 20, 25%. Uh, at their peak in the summer of 2020 than gasoline was. And that's one of the reasons why you saw, um, you know, supermarket prices for things like eggs and milk and bread shoot up so quickly. Yeah. One of the things we talk about on this podcast and really the premise of the podcast is removing government-imposed barriers or breaking government-imposed barriers. And these are government-imposed barriers. I mean, we've talked about inflation being a government-imposed barrier on past episodes. This is government Right now, the policy of the of the federal government is government creating a barrier that Americans have to overcome because bad decisions were made in Washington, D.C. on some of these. Let's talk about some of those policies that have created bad, you know, bad decisions that have created bad policies in Washington up to this point. Sure. And I think a good way to think about it is, uh, you know, everything, wherever it's made, needs to be taken to market. That includes energy. So there is what I would call an energy supply chain, right? You produce energy in a particular location and then you deliver it to the end consumer. Um, and that creates this, this chain where if you have government restrictions, they start to accumulate throughout that chain. And if, you've, if you have any break in that chain because the government regulation or requirements become too weighty, um, then the chain is not going to work and that delivery is not going to work. Mm -hmm. So in terms of what are some of the policies that are constraining the energy supply chain? Um, you know, 
you need to get government permits if you're going to uh, first you're going to need government leases to develop oil or gas uh, or site a solar farm or a wind farm on federal land you are going to need uh permits under the clean water act under the clean air act to build anything you're going to need separate permits under the clean air act for example to operate anything and that's different from a building permit uh you are going to trigger uh through these various permits environmental reviews under like the national environmental policy act which is often called nepa yeah. or the endangered species act and this adds time this adds risk and that risk eventually gets priced in even by the people who are financing these these projects so just to put yourself you know, in the shoes of someone who's considering a new energy project and i advise people you know before coming to afp on early stage energy projects they have to pitch to investors to raise seven eight figures for what ultimately may be a nine or ten figure project we're talking about pipelines we're talking about export terminals you could be talking about import terminals and to get the initial capital to get the project off the ground when you're pitching to investors one of the first things i want to know is let us know the number and identity of all the permits that you will need federal and state because it's not just a federal problem but right. it's where congress obviously needs to start and where most of the burden is and they will ask you what are the chances that you can get all these permits in an acceptable time frame and oh by the way what are the chances you can keep the permits because every permit decision or lease decision by the federal government offers an opportunity for litigation mm -hmm. and many times leases or permits are granted and that may take two or three or four years and then there's another two three four years of litigation on the back end so even if you get the permit win the court case your financing can can fall apart and the project can be abandoned yeah well and all of this all of this regulation has a cost to it right i mean it, it always makes me angry when i hear politicians say well you know we're just going to go after the oil company or we're going to go after the utility company we're going to show them they pass the cost of whatever that regulation is onto the consumer. It, it in, it, in and of itself, regulation is a big driver of the cost of, of energy, right? No, it absolutely is. It's, it's, a, cost of the, uh, it's a driver of the cost. It's a driver of you know, the timeline. A great example, like I said, it could take two, three years just to get a permit to build, let's say, an import terminal or an export terminal right. um, for things like uh, liquefied natural gas. Germany built one in six months last year because they just wow. decided to basically waive all their regulations because they determined it was of national importance to get a particular project done. And, you know, there's the saying, time is money. But when you get it done in six months, opposed to six years, then you're saving a lot of money and those savings are passed on. So that's another sure. way to think about it. Yeah. Well, and I think there are groups out there, whether they're environmental groups or others that that use this regulatory scheme and process to to tie projects up in court that increases the cost of these projects it, it's actually when i look at it and i think about it it's kind of amazing that we even get some of these projects off the ground with all of the regulation that's out there and they, and ultimately and i want to talk about hr1 but i'll let you answer that but that's what this is about is kind of removing some of that regulation right to let them go out and get these projects done. No, it is amazing that you can get them off the ground and there's less and less appetite among what you would call project developers to 
to even start trying to get these projects off the ground because they know the barriers they're going to face. And you mentioned the environmental groups. What they are realizing is that many of the same barriers that they thought they were benefiting from or were stopping the sources they don't like are now stopping the sources that they do like. And if you can't get any type of energy project done and, and energy needs grow with population, with the economy, um, you run into not just cost problems, but real reliability problems just in terms of access. For example, on the electricity grid, you know, increasing risk that's being reported from people who oversee the grid of you know, potential for brownouts and blackouts. And that can be a scary thing. It, that's you. You talked about that some of these environmental groups and there's there's kind some energy that they like and some that they don't like. I I mean I guess I don't get that. I like all energy that can be produced that is efficient and and works. And I'm not the expert on it, so I kind of let the experts, the people that want to invest money into the technologies, decide what those are. That's that's what I think frustrating is there are again there are people out there and some of them in government that are picking winners and losers in this doing subsidies in the energy business and all of that that stuff drives up the cost as well it absolutely drives up the cost and in many cases it drives up the environmental impact mm -hmm. um, which you know is a purported reason for many of these regulations they're actually counterproductive if you look at what you would call the life cycle of the environmental impact of a particular energy source. Right. You know, the politicians and many of these groups, they like to focus on just one aspect of the life cycle and kind of based on that, put a smiley face around certain energy sources and a frowny face around others yeah. where, you know, the people who are actually in the business of building these projects, making them economic to serve customer needs in you know, the market's needs at, you know, uh, the lowest possible price. Uh, they're really the experts at knowing both in terms of cost, in terms of reliability, in terms of environmental impact, and those which you might call externalities, they can really internalize them and they're increasingly market mechanisms that incentivize them to do that. So in many ways, these regulations are um, less needed, certainly at kind of their current thicket that they present, you know, less needed than ever. All right, so let's talk specifically about HR1 because that was great background on on energy and why things cost so much. What is HR1 going to do to lower the cost of energy? Sure. So HR1 broadly streamlines a lot of the processes that you need to go through to get permits under mm -hmm. things like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. Um, it makes environmental reviews, which have become extremely burdensome and kind of Kafka-esque in recent years, dragging on for three or four years, not really sure that they're trying to develop the highest value information, um, really reins those in and kind of returns them to their original purpose. The, the purpose was not to delay projects by years, or simply to get some very basic information about environmental impacts that the government might otherwise not know before deciding whether to grant a permit. Mm -hmm. But they've really gotten way out of control. And so this reigns in those environmental reviews that permits can trigger. They're kind of related but separate. It reigns them in too. So the kind of combined impact of streamlining the permitting process and streamlining the environmental review process has this real synergistic effect. Um, the bill also removes certain taxes that were imposed on uh, basically natural gas infrastructure, such as pipelines uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, like most taxes, those are going to be, you know, passed through, in this case, as energy taxes, 
um, it removes entirely certain kind of duplicative uh, regulations uh, where maybe two agencies both got the authority to veto our project or approve it. This bill says it's just going to be one of you because we don't need both of you weighing in. Mm -hmm. um, and it also repeals certain um, funding in the Inflation Reduction Act that basically subsidies to nonprofits who are working in the environmental space. We love nonprofits right here, but we just don't think they should be subsidized sure, by the government. Of course not. And there was about $27 billion of subsidies wow. in the Inflation Reduction Act. Some of those subsidies, if they stay in place, will probably be used to launch lawsuits against many of the energy projects that we actually need. So these are subsidies to, to nonprofit organizations and groups? So it's subsidized, it's funding a, a, a fund from which grants will come to. But if you look at kind of the broad uh, targeting of the grants as spelled out in the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, many billions would go to nonprofits. Ugh. Yeah, that's not a way to that's not a way to do it. It's it's uh, ripe for disaster there. What kinds of energy if if we passed HR1, what are the different kinds of energy that would be affected? Is it is it one sector over another or, or are they all sectors of energy or what? Really all energy projects. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that environmentalists or envi environmental groups are realizing that these restrictions impact their preferred projects as much as the other guys. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's hard to site a solar farm, you know, a, a wind farm. It's hard to build the transmission line that carries the electricity from the wind and solar resource areas, which happen to be pretty remote areas of our country, to the end markets where the electricity is going to be consumed. So by removing these restrictions, uh, you know, you know, renewables, wind, solar, uh, kind of traditional sources, oil, gas, they all will benefit from this bill. Um, so it's really an all of the above strategy um, and also certain inputs that would go into, let's say, uh, electric vehicle batteries. You know, electric vehicles, their batteries have this kind of chemistry of different um, minerals that we don't have many of here in the United States. Many of them are produced mostly in China or let's say, uh, you know, Chile or Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, and the Republican House of Representatives made the decision that we need to stand up, uh, not through kind of subsidies, but by reducing restrictions, mm -hmm. American mining of some of these minerals that would be used in electric vehicle batteries. So it, it really improves the production delivery and entire supply chain, I would say, of, of all sorts of energy and energy technologies. Yeah. And that's, I mean, to me, that's a national security issue, really, right? To be able to to, to say that we're going to be more sufficient, uh, self-sufficient uh, at, at making sure we're producing these things in the United States so that we aren't relying on foreign, in some cases, adversaries, and in other cases, just foreign countries. And you can't be totally self-sufficient. And I think, you know, nobody should su suggest that, and you're not. But, you know, these global markets, we need to be able to project influence into the markets. If we're not able to project influence, then we at some level expose ourselves. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's ramping up our production of some of these minerals for EV batteries or ramping up the production and infrastructure for natural gas, some of which we could export, you know, to Europe or other places. We've seen Europe kind of being an energy crunch. That has a very stark geopolitical dimension to it. And by being able to 
expand our energy supply chains, we're able to project more influence into these world energy markets. And eventually that has all sorts of benefits uh, for American, I would argue, domestic and you yeah. know, foreign policy. Well, but it would seem to me the last thing that we'd want to do as a country is to just sort of say, well, we're going to get our energy from somewhere else. We're not going to produce it in the United States of America. I mean, it's why, why would America do it, do that to itself and just say, hey, we're going to get this from somewhere else. It, it doesn't it doesn't reduce emissions. It, I mean, you're still consuming it, but you're denying Americans the jobs and, and the technology in our country. No, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the direct impacts in terms of jobs, in terms of tax base, in terms of, you know, meaningful work, right? Uh, you know, I worked in Eastern Ohio about 10 years ago at the beginning of kind of the shale revolution there. And you would see small towns, you know, one stoplight towns and one stoplight counties in the course of six or nine or 12 months, just get a makeover and just a sense of renewal and hope uh, from some of the economic activity that was coming in from, you know, shale drillers. Um, you also have the fact that, as you say, shifting this production to other places who, you know, even under HR1, we would have much more robust, you know, environmental protections than the places that would be shifting sure. production to. So, um, you know, it's it's the current configuration is is a lose-lose all around. And HR1 really tries to turn that on its head and create a win-win for all sources and various dimensions, I think, of, of you know, American policy and life. Yeah. So what do the critics of HR1 say? And I can imagine who many of the critics uh, are. Some of them are probably some of the f groups that are getting some of the subsidies that would be removed if HR1 passed. But what do the critics say about HR1? What's the biggest... A fight against it. Right. So I think some people underappreciate um, how much the current restrictions affect all energy sources. And because of that, they kind of paint this as um, just catering to oil and gas or let's say coal. When I said, you know, that's not the case at all. Um, some people simply say, look, we cannot pass a bill that makes it easier to produce any fossil fuel because there's a certain limit on the number of emissions we put out and we just need to quote unquote, keep it in the ground. So they don't want an all of the above strategy. They want a, just my preferred source strategy, right. uh, which this bill would help you know clear the path for. They just don't like the fact that it's broadly applicable uh, even to kind of traditional they sources. They want to pick winners and losers. Yeah, no, right, right. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you know, they, they want to leave out of the equation that you know, this fantasy that if we don't produce it here, it won't be produced somewhere else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that, I mean, you talk, you call it a fantasy and that's exactly, exactly what it is. So that's really the argument against it is from people who, who want to use government to help their preferred, uh, the, the energy source that they prefer, but to deny this, the sources that they don't like. Yeah. They feel like the American kind of energy policy over the past you know, two, two and a half years is going in the direction that they prefer, um, both with the Inflation Reduction Act and also with a lot of agency action that is picking winners and losers or putting extra costs on certain sources and uh, lavishing subsidies on others. Uh, and they don't want to end that dynamic. They right. don't want to reorient away from it. So, yeah, I wouldn't say that there's tons of great arguments against HR1. Um, it's just that 
this the current configuration is uh, very much to their liking, and they don't want to pivot away from that. Yeah. So um, I want to get be clear too on this. So Americans for Prosperity, for instance, is not it's not opposed to wind power or solar power, correct? No, we're for energy abundance from all sources. Um, you know. It makes sense to have diverse sources for various reasons. Um, you know, for beginners, it just adds to abundance. And the more abundance you have, uh, the lower the cost is going to be. So there's absolutely a place, I think, in the um, energy mix for every single source. Um, it's just a matter of allowing markets and the people who know the most about connecting the needs of consumers, be they families, individuals, businesses, industry, to particular sources at particular times of the day to do the work of sorting out that mix rather than have government kind of impose it from the top down. Yeah. And that's, you know, those deliverers of energy are reacting to market signals in the economy that says we want, you know, we want energy delivered in this way, or we want, uh, you know, we want more of this and, and it, it's driving costs down and things like that. They're making decisions based on market signals as opposed to politicians that are kind of making the, the decisions based off of political signals, right? Right. I mentioned the smiley face and the frowny face, yeah. right? There are are politicians who, you know, they have um, constituents and some slice of those constituents who they know are reliable votes in their own mind kind of draw a frowny or smiley face around certain sources. So there's a lot of messaging that goes around that uh, go, goes on around these issues. Uh, and there's a term you may have heard, many of your listeners may have heard called greenwashing. It's this idea that you just brand certain activities as good for the environment, even if they're not necessarily when you pop the hood and look underneath what's Mm -hmm. actually going on. um, But you get such a reputational boost from that. And there can be value in that to your enterprise. And that is, I think, a lot of what's going on here in terms of there wasn't as much pushback from certain sectors of industry as maybe there would have been five, 10, 15 years ago to both the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the agency action that I've been talking yeah. about. So where is this, where is HR1 in the process right now? So HR1 is passed out of the House mm-hmm. uh, and it's a prerogative of the Senate if they want to take it up. And they've pretty clearly signaled that they don't want to take it up. Um, you know, for the reasons I've already laid out, it's not in their interest in terms of their constituents um, think that you need to, uh, you know, keep it in the ground or at very least drive a much harder bargain. You know, there is one piece of HR one I should mention that you know, HR one didn't really address, and it's um, you know it, it addressed the delivery of energy from production to markets in terms of pipelines. It did l- somewhat less to address the delivery of electricity which is transmission lines. You know, those towers that you will see, you know, end to end, uh, kind of with a swath cut through, let's say a forest by a highway, mm-hmm. right? With those high tension lines. Um, and HR1 arguably did not do as much as it could have on that front. Uh, and Democrats in the Senate uh, are proposing and trying to build interest around a transmission only bill. Now, again, just because maybe transmission could have been beefed up in HR1 doesn't mean that a transmission only approach is the way to go. Um, But that is kind of 
their way of looking as if they are doing something on this issue mm-hmm. while not taking up the bill, which they've made clear they're they're not going to do. Um, you know, but it's interesting because uh, you know, the Senate is very closely divided. Uh, you know, one or two votes could tip a vote, a floor vote on a bill. Uh, and you do have a couple of Democratic senators who, because of their votes for the IRA, not to get too deep into politics, but, you know, have a lot of incentives to make up for basically what they've acknowledged is maybe a mistake and vote for an all of the above, um, you know, lower energy cost mm-hmm. type act. Um, but the leadership in the Senate, which controls really what bills are taking right. up, have made it known that the bill is never going to get taken up. So there's really no point in discussing it. Yeah. I mean, I think of people like Joe Manchin, right? Yeah. Who, his state relies very heavily on, on energy. Um, you know, I assume he's, he's one that yeah. is at least thinking about the, you know, whether or not to support HR one, if it came to the Senate. So yeah. John Tester too, from Montana, John Tester, Montana. Sure. Um, so it's, I mean, I think HR one is, is a very sensible starting point. Uh, and I think, frankly, the Senate and the Democrats who run the Senate were surprised uh, that Republicans were able to put out such a substantive bill that covered so much ground on all sources so quickly. So I, I think it's going to take them a while of scrambling um, to figure out what their response is. It can't just yeah. be these transmission only bills. But for now, that's type of that's sort of their placeholder. Yeah. Um, what can people do? I, well, before I ask that, I assume it sounds like it's not going to make it through the Senate at the moment. Right. But, but that can change, right. If people push, uh, and, and there's a groundswell of support for HR one, would the president even sign it? Would president Biden even sign a a bill like HR one? That's a great question. It's very (laughs) difficult to, uh, you know, anticipate what any president will do. I think particularly this president, um, I think there is a chance that you could have what's called a skinny version of HR one, where they take certain a- aspects of HR one um, that are maybe high value to all sources and also least offensive, let's say, to um, some of the constituents of the Democrats, uh, and pull those out and run with those individual bills. I mean, HR one, you know, there there are dozens of individual bills that have been that are part of that package. So they could take out one or two, particularly on environmental reviews, maybe reforming uh, NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, which governs environmental reviews. That's an area where there seems to be the most sort of bipartisan consensus, uh, you know, in both chambers that something needs to be done and fairly soon. Um, and if Environmental, if an environmental review bill were to be passed by both chambers, I presume that, that the president would sign it. Um, it. It's a good bet that the Senate is not going to do anything without talking to the president first and getting a read sure. on whether or not he would sign it. Yeah. What can people do if, if they if they want to get involved in this? What can they do? Is there some way to, obviously it's passed the House, is there a way to put pressure on the Senate to get this through the Senate? Well, there's always the option of calling your your senator um, you know, if, if enough calls come in, you know, on a particular issue, it can move the needle in terms of not changing them necessarily from yet from no to yes, but changing their posture on the ish, issue, mm-hmm. right? If a, um, if your median Senator starts getting a lot of calls over a stay in period of time, they may go to leadership and say, look, we need to do more on this. Now, what does more look like? 
you know, that would remain to be seen. But I think calling your senator is always a great first start. Um, you know, AFP, I think we'll have some events coming up. Uh, we're working up a report uh, on how federal permitting hurdles impact uh, particularly seven states that are part of our Prosperity is Possible campaign. Uh, and we're going to be having a tour that identifies individual projects in each of those seven states that are either currently hung up or they've actually already been canceled uh, and highlighting kind of the foregone economic benefits uh, you know, from those projects getting tied up in, in you know, permitting and, and uh, reviews. So you know, once we go out, we'll put out a schedule and we'd love to see people come out and turn out and, and you know, get a real you know, bottom-up movement around this issue and have policymakers at the federal level from these states know this is something that needs to be priority to bring prices down you know, for families and all consumers. Yeah. What are the last question I think here, some of the, we mentioned uh, Joe Manchin, uh, Senator Tester from Montana, but what are some of maybe the other senators that, you know, are kind of a priority that maybe we could get moved on this issue and be more likely to support HR1? Sure. Well, you look at Arizona, you know, Arizona has a lot of renewable resources. They also have a lot of mining potential. Kirsten Cinema, Kirsten Cinema. Uh, you know, and Mark Kelly and, you know, cinema is an interesting spot because she's looks like she's going to get primaried uh, right. by a fairly popular member of the house. Uh, so it stands to reason that she could be someone, uh, Senator Masto from uh, Cortez Masto from Nevada. Yep. Again, Nevada has a lot of resources that could be developed quicker into the benefit of, of, of more people. If some of the policies in HR one were taken up um, and she's also heading into a very difficult race. So I would highlight those the, those southwestern states. Sherrod Brown from Ohio, um, you know, he's had a fairly comfortable margin, as I recall, in his fairly in his last few races. But you know, Ohio, like I said, it goes back to uh, my work there a decade ago at the beginning of the, the shale revolution. There, they have so many resources, and it's still very difficult to get gas that natural gas that is produced into a pipeline and actually to market, and that tamps down on the development potential in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania and West Virginia. So I think Sherrod Brown, um, I think would be another one that I would highlight. So, you know, Tester Manchin, Brown, Cortez Masto, and, and the two Arizona senators, I think that makes six. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Mark, thanks for Thank joining you. us. So what a, what a, I mean, you're a wealth of knowledge. I appreciate you bringing this and obviously to, to folks, they, they need to act and put, put grassroots pressure on those senators, particularly. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we should get this done for all sources and for all Americans. And I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, you bet. And for our country, for America, we need, we need to, to continue to produce energy. Listen, thanks for joining us. Th this issue is a great example of an issue. This is money out of your pocket. I mean, you're going to be in a better place if HR1 passes in three years, five years down the road. Energy costs will be lower than they would be if HR1 didn't pass. This is an issue that you should get engaged on if you're listening to this podcast. So pick up your phone, call your United States Senator, uh, send them an email, um, you know, write them, whatever you want to do, but put that grassroots pressure, go to some of these events that Americans for Prosperity will be holding across the country. These are great opportunities to, to let your voice be heard. And uh, this is really an issue, as I said, that impacts everyone. And so we're, we're all in this together. And uh, this is something that we've got to make a priority. Thanks for listening to American Potential.
Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.